the bottom line in business. Voice America Business. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host, and my guest this hour is Michael Panzer, who is a 25-year veteran of global financial markets. He's worked at many major uh, banks. Uh, he's just come out with a new and updated uh, book called Financial Armageddon, Protect Your Future from Economic Collapse. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thanks for having me. Let's just start right off at the beginning uh, with what you call the main threats uh, to the economic uh, welfare that people have out there. And the first uh, main threat you talk about uh, is the amount of debt that people have. So just give us a sense of the, the size of the amount of debt, that, that uh, it, you know, the, the level of the threat here. Sure. Well, I think the figure that strikes me and, and struck me, actually, when I first started thinking about this, the idea for this book, was the, the sort of measure of the total amount of debt in the system. If you take government debt plus private debt plus state and local, all levels, uh, excluding retirement-related obligations, which is a whole other issue in and of itself, um, you're talking on something that's on the order of magnitude of about three and a half times the size of the economy, 350%. The last time we saw numbers even remotely close to that was at the peak of the Depression when we saw just around uh, 300% or three times the size of the economy. So, you're talking about the U.S. economy or world economy? The U.S. economy. U.S. economy, okay. Because I mean, we are a big debtor nation, but there are other places in the world that have lots of savings that we've been counting on to bail us out. So... That that's why it hasn't been a problem so far. You're saying is that right? Well, yeah. I mean, and uh, you and so far is certainly the operative word there. I think uh, in the future that so far will be missing, uh, unfortunately for America and unfortunately for Americans. Yeah. So how did we get into such debt? Well, I think it's a combination of factors. I mean, we went through an era of, um, if you like, where government authorities, uh, the private sector, you know, the sort of uh, financial sector, the, the 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 corporate America, so to speak, encouraged people to believe that they could have everything that their their parents had and more. Um, then there was also this sense that if things went wrong with the economy, if if we had a, you know, we were approaching a recession or something, that the Federal Reserve or the government or somebody would bail things out. So, so people got lulled into a sense that there's no point in worrying about the future, um, and if you're not worried about the future, then you might as well live for today, and part of that is taking on lots of debt, and I think it really permeates every level of uh, society from individuals all the way up through the, through the U.S. government. What has been some examples in, in past history where uh, countries you know, built up a huge amount of debt and it, it ultimately you know, caused huge financial problems? Well, I mean, some classic examples, and the outcomes were particularly poor. I mean, you could look at what happened in uh, many South American countries. The latest example was Argentina um, in the, the sort of, uh, you know, in the past decade. You've got issues that we go back to countries like uh, Germany before the, uh, before the war and uh, really in the lead-up to that, where essentially they had this you know, crushing amount of debt, uh, a lot of it related to war reparations, but ultimately... The solution they took was to, to sort of print more money and, uh, and essentially destroy the currency. Um, and I think if you really go back very far, you could even talk about the, you know, the, the sort of Roman Empire mm-hmm. as, a, as, a, as a time when people essentially lived beyond their means, uh, you know, mainly at the government level, but certainly it permeated at uh, many levels of society. 
So you're saying those are apt uh, comparisons to today, what happened to Rome and the Weimar Republic and Argentina, that something similar to that is going to be happening here? Yes, I do. And I think probably the closest parallel and the one that's, you know, been brought up throughout time um, is, is, is the, the relevancy to, of Rome, for that matter, to, to the U.S. And it had a, a number of, 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 I guess, similarities. Um, you know, clearly there was a, this element of overstretch uh, in terms of the U.S. and its, its sort of a military expansion around the world. And, and part of that expansion is, is, is taking on a crushing load of, of, of borrowed money to essentially pay for it all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's the first uh, threat is debt. Then the second one, is the retirement system? Um, so tell and, and you're pretty much talking about the U.S. here. This is not global, is that right? Right. It's it's very American centric. Although you have certain countries, for example, like the United Kingdom, which there's a number of parallels there. And I would expect that the the problems that we face here in America, they they may see many many, many things similar in, in the United Kingdom, for example. I mean, for some countries, Germany and Italy and Japan already have a very old, much older population than we do. Because they had the, the, the no, not that many births after World War II, where we had a lot of births. Sure. In fact, it's it's probably if you want to generalize, it's a it's a it's a global problem among mature economies um, for the most part. But you know, in places like Russia, they have a you know a serious demographic issue. Uh, they're just lucky in a sense, if you want to call it luck, is that they've got all these um, you know sort of commodity resources now that sort of compensate. But you know, many countries from J- Japan, even China, because of their one-child policy. They were trying to limit population, but one of the consequences of that is that they have this, you know, rapidly aging population as well. Um, so, so, what are the uh, economic implications of having a, a, you know, older population and the retirement systems having huge liabilities? Well, I mean, in the U.S. in particular, there's a couple of problems. First of all, they really haven't accounted for all the promises that have been made to uh, potential retirees, and I'm and I'm really focusing on the baby boomers. 70-odd million, which is set to retire over the course of the next several decades. But uh, the, the, the cold, hard reality at both the sort of federal level when we're talking Social Security or Medicare, or even at the state and local government level where, you know, we have this tremendous buildup of obligations related to public employees. But a lot of this stuff has not been accounted for properly. And those who run the numbers um, have come up with some fairly mind-boggling sums. I mean, on the order of Sixty, seventy, eighty trillion dollars. I mean, it's just hard to get your arms around that sort of number. But again, equating it to the size of the economy, you're talking five times the size of the economy. So, has this happened in the past and in history as well? Has there been a similar kind of promises to retired populations that haven't been able to be met? Well, not exactly. In fact, you know, arguably, some might say that it it it, it wasn't always such a bad thing that we have this retirement system, and that many you know parts of the Western world do, because clearly people in the older days were much more reliant on their families. They were much more reliant on charity, private charity in particular. Uh, so we did go through an era, if you like, the post-war, um, post, if you go back even further, post-FDR period, where there was a sense that we owed more to the people who are, you know, who had sort of worked their entire lives and, and were reaching the end of them. But um, so, in the answer to your question, is not explicitly, but I lump them together with all the other obligations, uh, mainly stemming from from the sort of explicit debts that people have taken on. So, what are the economic implications of having uh, this huge, you know, as you say, tens of trillions of dollars owed to retirees that we don't really have that money to pay them? 
Well, there's a number of issues. I mean, some people have argued that, um, that at some point we'll see, as, if you like, a, a generational clash. I mean, we'll see young people who, in essence, the workers are the ones who pay for this. I mean, we don't. The problem is that not only have they not accounted for these programs, they haven't actually um, put aside the funds to pay for them. I mean, arguably, there is some kind of a social security trust fund, but that's not really doesn't really exist in the sense that you know there's a pot of money that's sort of excluded and that's been invested in all sorts of, you know, advantageous uh, earning assets. Um, it's really just been used to lend one arm of the money, uh, one, one arm of the government uh, more money, and, and it essentially disguises the size of the deficit. Um, but Medicare is, is, is clearly not accounted for, and all of these things represent obligations that will either be uh, honored or dishonored. If they're honored, it represent a crushing weight on the uh, working population. Um, and if they're dishonored, you could have uh, essentially, you know, people, old people rioting in the streets. I mean, I don't know exactly how it's going to get resolved, but it will get resolved, and most likely in a painful way. Now, this has obviously been a big political issue, uh, Social Security and how to save it. President Bush wanted to put in private accounts. The Democrats didn't want to go along with that. Some have said it's just a matter of a few um, uh, actuarial changes, and that will solve the whole thing. What do you say to this whole political argument about how to so-called save Social Security? Well, I, I do believe, actually, that there will, in fact, be a, an actuarial change. I think people will be forced to retire later if they're allowed to retire at all. Um, I think the retirement age is, is, will definitely change sometime over the next decade, um, probably on the order of five years or more, maybe even more. Um, I think that's one way to essentially change the, the, the dynamics of the financial model. Um, but I think it, it, it still leaves a lot of questions open, and it still creates other, you know, there's other unintended consequences. If people who are younger are essentially going to be competing with a much larger pool of older people than they might have expected. So, you know, that creates tensions in and of itself. And also, you know, arguably older people have uh, on balance, not, you know, I don't want to generalize too much, but on balance have less pressing needs in terms of, you know, money they need for raising a family, etc. So they might drive down the whole level of salaries because they're willing to work for less. And again, these kinds of strains could cause a, a whole uh, load of problems, you know, both in, in social terms as well as economic terms. So do you think privatization of Social Security is a good idea? Would it help uh, if you had those monies put into separate accounts and in uh, er earning assets of various types? Well, I mean, you're, it's a really it's a two-part question. Do I think privatization would help the problems of the past? Uh, probably not. Um, do I think privatization and, and to have a, a, a true um, system where money is actually invested for the long run would it you know would it help in the long run? Yeah, but there's a there's a you know there's a disconnect between the sort of old you know the past and the future. So you still whatever you want to do now to change things, you still have to deal with this buildup of obligations from the past. And, and the transition uh, was going to cost several trillion dollars, I guess, from the past to the future. Yeah, and you know people, I mean, I, personally. It may happen, um, I, but I think it will take an absolute crisis for that kind of an environment to uh, to come about, and I think we're nowhere near that point. But this is such so big that even if we were in a crisis, it's taken decades to develop it. You couldn't turn a switch and change it somehow. No, I mean, but, you know, countries have come around. They have uh, changed their 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 structures, their social uh, safety net structures, 
over time. I think the example, and I'm, here I don't claim to be an expert, but I think Chile did something along those right. lines. Right. Um, I, and again, I'm not an expert particularly on those transitions, but, um, but you know, it can be done, but a lot of times you essentially have a gun put to your head, and that's what causes it to get done. Yeah. Okay, I'm speaking with Michael Panzer, whose new book is called uh, Financial Armageddon, uh, Protect Your Future from Economic Collapse. Uh, the next of the threats that you talk about is uh, government guarantees. Uh, so why don't you briefly go into what kind of guarantees the government has made and what kind of problem that causes. Okay. I, I mean, again, I kind of loosely put these together with retirement obligations and debt, and all of them, in a sense, represent, if you want to put one giant label on them, obligations, whether they're explicitly accounted for or not. And in terms of government guarantees, that's probably the most insidious of all. I mean, people look at, for example, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Most people are aware that they're the biggest housing lenders in the country. Um, there's this ongoing debate, which I think will be tested, um, about whether, in fact, they do represent uh, obligations of the government or not. And frankly, they, legally, they don't. Uh, morally, they may turn out to be a, uh, it may turn out that the government has to bail them out. But uh, they are the kind of thing that I'm describing here. Is it's, it's an element of uh, an obligation, a liability, something that taxpayers ultimately will probably be on the hook for. Um, another example is the uh, FDIC, deposit insurance system. I mean, they did make a number of changes to the system uh, over the course of the past uh, decade or two decades or so to try and shift more of the risk away from taxpayers to the banking system itself. But the banking system has problems of its own. And once that insurance fund, um, and, and I think it will happen, is, is depleted, um, it's going to create a political. Uh, it's going to create a political nightmare um, that I think, in my mind at least, they'll end up stepping in and backing the system, uh, even though they claim to disentangle themselves. So, okay. you know, you're talking yeah, about. We're going to break. We're just going to go to break, and we'll be right back. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show, and my, I'm speaking with Michael Panzer of Financial Armageddon: uh, Protect Your Future from Economic Collapse. We'll be back after this. All we talk about is money. Call us toll-free, 866-472-5790, and talk to the experts. We talk, talk money, money all the time. the time. Voice America Business. Technology is changing the way we live our lives and how we do business. On CIO Talk Radio, we talk about the benefits of technology and the great things it allows us to do, as well as its risks. Heard every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Central, 7 a.m. Pacific, Sunjo Gall interviews business leaders and other experts that are shaping the way we use technology. To learn more about this show, visit www.ciotalkradio.com. Keep up with the changing world of technology and listen to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjo Gall. Listen in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Central, 7 a.m. Pacific, right here on Voice America Business. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure, what's up? Um, there's this girl I kind of like. Well, if there's one thing I know, it's women. Really? Well, they didn't call me velvet for nothing. I don't get it. Smooth. I was smooth. Oh. Anyway, it's easy. You just got to impress her. Show her how strong you are. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? I don't know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt, if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, Ugh! Try it. Ugh! Ugh! <laughs> See, there you go. And you should dress up. Start wearing a shirt and tie. I'll look like a dork. No, you'll look successful. Okay. 
And finally, you can start using my cologne. <clears throat> the ladies love it, so don't be shy. Splash it on. Thanks, Dad. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To find out how you can adopt, please visit our website at adoptuskids.org or call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Jordan Goodman has created the Money Answers Network to put at his listeners' fingertips the very best personal finance products and services that he has found in his 30 years of research. If you have a money question, Jordan Goodman has a money answer. To find out more, go to www.moneyanswers.com. The Money Answers Network features top products and services in virtually every area of personal finance, car buying, and leasing, college financing, credit debt, financial planning, investing, insurance, legal services, mortgages, retirement planning, wills, and more. Only businesses that have demonstrated excellence in both their products and services are invited to become members of the Money Answers Network. The public can sign up for membership in the Money Answers Network at no charge in order to be apprised of the latest useful resources. To learn more, visit www.moneyanswers.com. Get ahead with Money Answers. All we talk about is money. Call us toll-free, 866-472-5790, and talk to the experts. We talk talk money money all the time. time. Voice America Business. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show, and my guest this hour is Michael Pantner, uh, who is the author of Financial Armageddon, Protect Your Future from Economic Collapse. And we were talking about the various obligations that the government has taken on, financial guarantees. You talked about the FDIC. What are some of the other big guarantees that people are that the government has taken on that worry you, Michael? Well, I think there's a number of them, and they can generally be classified as sort of explicit and uh, implicit. Um, I mean, clearly the government has uh, guaranteed certain kinds of loans. For example, Ginnie Mae is explicitly guaranteed by the government. Um, but there is also what we categorize as implicit, which I, I mentioned Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, that uh, people believe the government will be forced to step in even though they claim they won't, and it's not guaranteed. Uh, then you have the sort of banking system, you know, if a number of banks start failing, and I expect that to happen, uh, I also expect a number, uh, more than one major well-known uh, bank to, 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 to go through the same fate. Um, you also have, um, you know, other obligations the government's taken on, you know, in terms of terrorism, in terms of natural disasters. All of these things represent claims, whether or not uh, the public is aware of them, whether or not the public wants them. I, you know, I presume there's a, there's a reason, you know, there's there's that if it were put to a vote, they might, but I think if they understood what the consequences were in terms of what it could cost them in the long run in terms of taxes and, and, and really uh, losing out on other services, they might, might think twice. Let's talk, for, for example, about the, what happened with Bear Stearns, where the Federal Reserve basically backed, I guess it was about $29 billion for J.P. Morgan Chase to take them over. Uh, where did that $29 billion come from? Was that added to a ledger somewhere? Or that, that's an example of the kind of guarantees you're talking about, I guess. Yeah. I mean, essentially, they uh, they put the, 
you know, arguably there's there's a, a fairly gray area here about the Fed's true relationship in terms of the government, in terms of the taxpayers. But on, the, on, on in general terms, the taxpayers now have an obligation, and if it doesn't work out, um, the Fed is one way or another likely to go to the Treasury to uh, to get support. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of mechanics involved to get to that point. Um, but the, but the reality is is that they made essentially an equity type investment because money is at risk um, and arguably their their view was that they were swapping you know certain kinds of securities as collateral but as we've seen over the past six months or so just because something seems like good collateral doesn't mean it is good collateral and I think that that issue will become uh, worse over time so are you saying it would have been better for them not to have stepped into Bear Stearns and not have in effect the public take on that uh, guarantee well, there's some argument, and I, and I buy the argument, by the way, um, that the reason we're in this predicament to begin with is because the government has a history of stepping in over the past two decades. I mean, it, you know, throughout the Greenspan era, um, essentially people were led to believe, whether, you know, whether it sort of was intentional or not is irrelevant, but they're led to believe that if things really go wrong, the government is going to step in and bail them out. So. What do people do? It's like, you know, if somebody says, oh, by the way, you don't have to insure your car because we'll pay for whatever, you know, whatever happens to you whenever you're driving, right? What are you going to do? You're going to drive like a maniac. And I think that's what happened in the financial community. People essentially drove like maniacs um, and created this sort of house of cards, if you want to use that terminology, um, and argue, you know, who knows what the consequences directly would have been for Bear Stearns. My feeling is that by by not letting them fail, it means next time around, and, and I believe there will be a next time, if it's a larger institution or if it's several institutions, they're, they're, they're in a box. And if they don't save one, it creates a, it'll create a tremendous chaos. Yeah. I guess this happened really in the late 80s when you had the savings and loans driving like maniacs, as you would say, financially. And the... Uh, RTC and all that was was formed to bail them out at the tune of to five hundred billion or so, and it was just kind of laid on the taxpayers. So you're saying that kind of thing is going to continue to happen in the future. And it's a, and it's a perfect analogy. And some people argue the whole Fannie Mae Freddie Mac uh, scenario is is a is a, is a is a is a kind of a replay of the uh, SNL crisis. Um, it's a, you you have what is called moral hazard, and moral hazard where is where you encourage people to do things they otherwise wouldn't because they're not afraid of the consequences. And and you know the the whole point about letting some institutions fail or the capitalist system, if you want to go to a broader term, is that if people are aware that mistakes can cost them and it can cost them big then they tend to be more prudent if they if they believe that you know they they have unlimited upside and limited downside then they're going to roll the dice and it's it's a, it's a perfect human example of human nature and of course the fed would say with bear stearns that they pretty much wiped out the shareholders and half the employees and so there was lots of pain to go around that was as not as they got off scot free well, some people suffered, but why did the shareholders get anything? That's the first question. Okay, why did they, you know, that's the, the, the point. And the other reason um, that the, the uh, there were a number of, you know, the, the nature of the financial system has changed dramatically over the past couple of decades, and bondholders and, and, and people who lend money are an equally, if not much greater, um, uh, constituency in, in terms of the sort of financial and investment community. And in, in, in those cases, those people didn't really suffer um, at all, and, and perhaps they should have suffered as much as shareholders. Mm -hmm. And the next threat you talk about is derivatives. Uh, it's kind of complicated for people, but why don't you briefly tell them you know, what kind of derivatives out there and what kind of uh, threat that uh, poses to the economy? 
Sure. I mean, I took the topic on knowing full well that most people's eyes sort of glaze over when they hear the term. But in simple terms, a derivative is a paper promise, okay? It's a promise to do something in future. You could argue an engagement is a derivative. You're promising to get married at some point in the future. So in essence, that's what they are, and they are created literally out of thin air. Some of the common examples that people are probably aware of are commodity futures, where you agree between you and somebody else to, 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 to buy or sell corn or wheat or whatever, stocks, whatever, at some point in the future based on today's price. An option is a similar thing. And one of the, the many areas of derivatives that have become uh, explosive in terms of their size and in terms of their growth is what's known as over-the-counter derivatives, which are paper agreements between banks that don't go on a regulated exchange like uh you know the Chicago Board of Trade or the uh, the you know the there commodity are exchange of these out there right excuse me there are trillions of these uh, over yeah i mean you know the, the, i go into it a little bit i mean the 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 face value if you like or the notional amount um, is probably overstating the issue to some extent. Um, but there are certain areas of the derivatives universe, and, and one of these involves a, uh, a security that's become uh, increasingly talked about among federal officials, among regulators, and it's a form of insurance policy against uh, um, credit problems. And these are called credit derivatives, uh, credit default swaps. Now, you don't have to know much about the mechanics, but it's a kind of insurance against a company going belly up or against a company getting into serious trouble. Well, and what happened is... For, size, for example, right? I mean, excuse me? Bear Stearns did have credit default swaps. Uh, well, a, they had them, and they were a major player, and, and that was one of the, you know, it's never been stated explicitly, but, but the, certainly uh, among people who, who do look at these issues, one of those suggestions uh, as to why J.P. Morgan took over Bear Stearns is because a failure of Bear Stearns would have created all of these all of these credit default swaps that Bear Stearns was a party to would have been in the sort of state of, uh, of never-never-land. It would have been a state of chaos, and it would have disrupted the entire market, and J.P. Morgan happens to be the largest player in that market. Mm-hmm. So it was a kind of a self-interested, self-interested rescue uh, by some accounts. I don't know if that's true, but I think it's very logical. Mm-hmm. So what could happen with derivatives? I mean, how could these blow up? You're saying that Bear Stearns was like a... A precursor of what's to happen with other derivatives, where they yes, I do. Party risk people don't really know what's on the other side of the, of the, of the trade. I do, and and even you know, not to make it too too fancy, but you know, uh, the whole reason for the mortgage market and the way it became more efficient, and the fact that people could borrow on all kinds of crazy terms and all kinds of crazy instruments. If you're familiar with adjustable rate mortgages, etc., mm-hmm. a lot of the reason that could happen was because of these paper promises that people could essentially repackage loans into these uh, um, paper derivatives called mortgage-backed securities. And the problem is is all this stuff floating around the globe um, in, in significant size, no one is, it really has a handle on the full scale of the, um, the, of the, the size that's involved. Um, no one has a great handle on the risk involved or the, the exposure that any one institution has. And it creates this tremendous uncertainty. And, and financial markets and the economy, if you like, depend on confidence and depend on a measure of, uh, you've got to believe the guy you're dealing with is going to be around tomorrow. But if yeah. you're afraid he's got all sorts of paper promises that are going to essentially be worthless at some point, you're going to say, wait a minute, I don't want to deal with him. And that can be produ- produce a sort of a contagious chain reaction that, that can lock the system up. So what are you saying is going to be happening with derivatives when 
people worry about the counterparty risk you're talking about. What is your scenario for the kind of unwinding of the derivatives market? Well, I think we one example of this issue, and you brought up a key term here, counterparty risk. Um, it, you know, a year ago, if you asked somebody what counterparty risk was, unless you were in the financial industry, you would have said, what are you talking about? But the, the, the principle is that the person you deal, that you have a contract with, are they going to be there to honor that contract when the time comes? Um, and if they're not, or if you're worried that they're not, then it creates, um, you know, uh, an element of uncertainty and it creates an element of, uh, it, it disrupts the market. And you're talking about, a, you know, a huge market where people have tremendous positions. And it's a bit like the old argument, the value of those positions is like if you live in a neighborhood and one person sells their sells their house at a at a very low price, it affects the value of everyone's house. And the same goes for derivatives. If people do things because of distress or because their uh, uh, you know markets are markets are in upheaval, then it tends to to to, to mess up values for everyone. Mm-hmm. So that's what you think is going to happen. It's kind of like yeah, and I think that Bear Stearns was a go downhill. <laughs> excuse me. The derivatives neighborhood is going to go downhill. You're saying? Uh, yeah, and I think we saw uh, an element of that. Although in the end, it was it was it was stopped in its tracks by the by the merger between um, J.P. Morgan and uh, Bear Stearns. But it, it's my belief that the that the numbers and the the scale of exposure is is too large, and that and and by the way, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are huge players in the derivatives market, um, ostensibly for hedging reasons. But again, you're talking about complicated securities that many of which have an inbuilt leverage in other words small moves in the value of whatever it is they they represent can 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 be very expensive in terms of the the changes in what those secu- what those derivatives are worth so they're very 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 geared um, and that's a uh, you know you get uh, get movements when you're talking about a scale of trillions and you're talking about some serious money Okay, we're going to go to a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show, and my guest this hour is uh, Michael Pansner, uh, who's written a book called Financial Armageddon, Protect Your Future from Economic Collapse. If you haven't been scared yet, you will be scared further, and we'll also talk about what you can do about uh, staving off financial Armageddon for yourself. We'll be back after this. Talk about his money. Call us toll free, 866 472 5790, and talk to the experts. We talk talk money money all the time. time. Voice America Business. Jordan Goodman has created the Money Answers Network to put at his listeners' fingertips the very best personal finance products and services that he has found in his 30 years of research. If you have a money question, Jordan Goodman has a money answer. To find out more, go to www.moneyanswers.com. The Money Answers Network features top products and services in virtually every area of personal finance, car buying, and leasing, college financing, credit debt, financial planning, investing, insurance, legal services, mortgages, retirement planning, wills, and more. Only businesses that have demonstrated excellence in both their products and services are invited to become members of the Money Answers Network. The public can sign up for membership in the Money Answers Network at no charge in order to be apprised of the latest useful resources. To learn more, visit www.moneyanswers.com. Get ahead with Money Answers. When I found out my jeans were made using child labor in sweatshops, I wrote a letter to the company saying, reconsider your labor practices. A few months later, I get a letter back saying thanks for being a loyal customer, and they included a coupon for a 25% discount on their jeans. So I got smart, wrote letters every day to all the stores that carry the brand, asking them to stop supporting the companies who use child labor in sweatshops. 
and I just kept getting letters back thanking me for my concerns and more coupons for more discounts on more jeans. So I'm telling my friend about it, and she flips out, saying that between all the letters and coupons, some paper company cut down a small forest, driving off two indigenous tribes, hundreds of endangered animals, killing thousands of plant species, some of which may have contained vaccines for HIV, cancer, and syphilis. Meanwhile, the guys cutting down the trees are 13-year-old kids who will work night and day for months just to save up enough money to buy a pair of jeans made by child labor in sweatshops. What I want to be when I grow up by Johnny Mike. Dad, it's John. I got the promotion. We'll call him John Jr. You'll speak over 500 million words in your lifetime, but none of them will be as important as the words you use to tell your six-year-old he has cancer. CureSearch.org connects you to the most comprehensive research and advice on childhood cancer and to other families who know exactly what you're going through. CureSearch.org. You're not as alone as you feel. Brought to you by CureSearch and the Ad Council. Sell, buy, buy, sell. All we talk about is money. Talk to an expert. Call now. now. Toll free 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Michael Panzner, uh, who is the, uh, uh, a trader on Wall Street and the author of a new book called Financial Armageddon, Protect Your Future from Economic Collapse. Welcome back to the show, Michael. Thanks. We've talked about uh, so far the various risks, uh, the uh, kind of crises that are, are waiting out there in derivatives and debt and government guarantees. Uh, I do want to get to what you call defenses, uh, which is what people can do if they realize this is coming, to prepare for it so they don't get, get wiped out. As most people probably will, is what you're saying. They don't really know this is coming at them. Uh, the first uh, chapter is, is what's called planning. And why don't you give us some, some general ideas of what people should be doing to plan uh, for the coming Armageddon? Sure. Well, let me, let me just put it into a little bit of a context. I think when this all plays out, it's going to play out in two phases. And I think the first phase is going to be a, um, a contracting economy and deflation. And uh, very much like the Depression we saw 80-odd years ago, I think the second phase will be similar to what other others who have warned about the dangers have forecast um, that we'll see a tremendous inflation because the government will be in a position where they have to do something to essentially, quote, truly rescue the system. So mm-hmm. that's the context. So really, realistically, in the first phase, you really want to live a, uh, adjust your lifestyle. You want to adjust your your mindset. You want to, to put it in, into your head in the sense that um, tomorrow won't necessarily be better than today. And I, and I know that sounds like a rather uh, sort of disillusioning argument, but the, the thing to remember with this kind of an environment is is when you have a sort of credit collapsing and the economy collapsing and all of the excesses being removed that built up over the course of many decades, uh, it creates, it creates d- tremendous downward pressure on asset prices of all kinds. I mean, house you're prices... You're seeing this to some extent. I mean, what you're saying is, is happening. Certainly in the real estate market, and a lot of stocks have dropped dramatically and... Uh, so to some extent, it's already happening. You're saying it's got a lot further to go, though. Yes, it does. And uh, uh, in my opinion, again, this is, is, is probably a little bit more debatable, but we won't see a bottom in the housing market for at least five years. Um, that's my opinion. Um, at the same time, we have this deflationary impact, like in the real estate market. We've already got, I'm not sure it's hyperinflation, but we certainly have inflation and with oil prices you know, well over $130 a barrel and 
corn and gr- grain prices going up and all kinds of inflation. So we, we, we seem to be having them. You said it's sequential, depression first, then hyperinflation. It seems like we're having both at once in a certain way. Well, I mean, I disagree, and there are people out there who are, are very smart and very uh, who've thought about this, and I disagree with some of them. And I think what we're seeing now in oil markets, what we're seeing now in, in commodity markets, although I generally believe 10 years from now prices will be higher, um, what we're seeing now is a legacy of all the debt um, that was created over the past, you know, two decades. I think it's it's a bit like when you um, when you're running out of gas in your gas tank and you get this explosive pop. And I think that's what we're seeing in commodity markets. Um, you know, structurally, I believe the longer term trend for oil is up. Um, but oil is, 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 you know, energy use is driven by demand, and and demand tends to get affected in a uh, when the economy slows down. In- industry is a huge user of energy, and if industry is is, is cutting back and, and cutting down, um, that will reduce demand for oil, and that will push prices lower, in my opinion. So well, the first part of the phase is, as you say, the, the deflationary part. Right. So what kind of investments and where should you have your money in a deflationary environment to take advantage of it? Well, believe it or not, and some people argue this is uh, this sounds pretty boring, but um, I think it goes back to the sort of Will Rogers argument, don't talk to me about uh, return on capital, talk to me about return of capital. Mm-hmm. I think the idea is to focus on safe uh, types of investments. Um, I, I think you should be favoring treasury bills. You should be tra- favoring um, investments in, in, in large banks but below the FD. IC limits, uh, although in the long run, by the way, I think all banks will be uh, suspect. Um, you should be favoring very short-term uh, government bonds, um, and you should it's kind be... It's ironic that you're saying, here the government's created all these huge obligations, and you're saying the place you should put your money is in Treasury securities issued well, by the government is about to inflate its way out of this problem. Well, uh, yes, and it does sound on face value, but it's a process. And the first thing is that I think at the end of the day, the government um, will be the last man standing. And I think that will be the case, uh, particularly with the U.S. government. So I think the rest of the uh, the, the world will, will suffer its sins first, and then the government will throw in the towel. So at some point, you don't want to own any paper. <laughs> when the transition goes from depression to inflation and hyperinflation, I believe um, you won't want to own anything but paper, um, yeah, and I think uh, that stage, you don't want to be in treasury bills, right? Yeah, at that point you want to give up on anything that's paper, whether it's uh, government guaranteed or not. You want to go, want to own hard assets, you want to own gold, you want to own uh, commodities, you want to own property, you want to own um, you know sort of land, uh, farmland. I, but I believe. In, in my view, and again, there are people who differ with me who think you should be buying those things now. Uh, in my belief, it's, it's a washout first, and that we wash out all of the excesses. All of this money that was created uh, is credit money. Um, mm-hmm. And when that credit money disappears, the money disappears, and people have to sell things to raise cash. And that's historically been the case, and, and I think it will happen this time. And that's driving down prices like in the real estate market. Right. And it will also drive down, you know, even things like gold, I believe, and this is where I disagree with some, is it will drive those prices down in the short run. You'll see t- tremendous corrections, and then you want to buy because I think it goes to the moon. So, okay, so on, on cash, um, only treasure bills, would you do uh, commercial money market mutual funds and invest in commercial funds? Well, I'm very hesitant. Unless they're pure treasury funds, um, I, I would, you know, think about that. But I, I think the other thing and the issue you raised earlier in the program about counterparty risk, that's going to become a concern in some of these instances, which mm-hmm. firms that you have your money market funds with. Um, if you're with a 
failed broker in, in, in theory, your money is segregated and, and, and safe, but in reality, you might not have access to your funds for, for quite a while. So I think that's going to become more and more of a consideration going forward, who you do business with, where you put your money, and who, how, how quickly or easily you can access it. There have actually been some cases recently where money market mutual funds were bailed out by the, the fund sponsors because they didn't want to break the buck, in effect. That's correct, and there's been other cases where people have bought what they thought were sort of quasi-money market-type funds. They, in fact, weren't um, investing in, in these sort of perpetual auction rate securities, which essentially had no uh, maturity date, and they were promoted as being like cash, and in the end, these people can't get out. There's, yeah. no, there's no market for them, and their brokers have essentially walked away from helping them. Um, and this, this is in the in U.S. Areas, you're saying. This, this, Excuse me? This will happen in other areas as well. Yes. And because we're liquid and safe are not liquid and safe anymore. That's correct. And I think simplicity and safety and uh, understanding what it is you're actually buying it will be a important uh, consideration as well as who you do business with. Um, and I think that is a key element of planning from, from my point of view. So that's on the safety side. How about being aggressive and shorting stocks or buying puts or things that will benefit by falling asset prices? Well, I, I, you know, I, I, people have to have the right mindset and the, the right background and the right uh, risk uh, uh, parameters. I mean, uh, clearly I think there will be money to be made on the short side, but not everybody is cut out to do short selling. And the other thing is that I expect that markets will become tremendously volatile. Um, it's not going to be for the faint-hearted. Um, mm -hmm. There will be opportunities, trading opportunities, probably even on the long side from time to time, like we saw in this rally of the past two months. But ultimately, it, it really comes down to your constitution. I mean, I think uh, the financials remain a very vulnerable sector. Like I said, I think a number of them are going out of business. Um, I think anything that has to do with the U.S. consumer um, is vulnerable. Um, um, the, con the consumer is, the age of consumerism is over. Um, anyone who doesn't recognize that is fooling themselves. And so you have this whole industry built up on satisfying consumers, and those consumers are going to stop buying. Because they just don't have the money at this point. They're they don't have the money. They're going to save money. I mean, the savings rate is, you know, around sort of marginally around zero. Yeah. Um, and people have nothing to prepare themselves for the future, either in terms of their short-term savings or their long-term savings. And fear is going to be a great motivator. Okay. So on the way down, you basically keep your money in treasury bills or the safest kind of cash. And then it's kind of how does this play out when it switches from – uh, deflationary depression to a hyperinflationary kind of how does that uh, work out? Well, I, th I suppose the first question people are going to ask is how do I know? And I think the the one way to know, and and again, don't be misled by what we've seen so far. I think when you see, for example, the main world currencies all going to new lows versus the dollar, I mean the dollar going to new lows versus the major currencies around the world, that will be a first sign that the, uh, that the game is up. Um, that has already happened to some extent, hasn't it? Uh, no, I mean... Maybe not all-time lows, but there's certainly... They, yeah, but I think all-time lows for me is, is the key parameter. So, I mean, that is the, the, the bell-ringing moment, um, in my opinion. Um, and in fact, there is an argument to be made um, for a dollar rally, believe it or not, um, as the credit crisis unfolds, because you have a, a tremendous 
amount of debt around the world. And if people, if bankers call in debts, people have to raise cash, and that it tends to create a demand for liquidity and hence a demand for dollars. So there, there, you could actually see a, a completely unexpected move higher in the dollar. Um, and the other reason is, and you know, there's a lot of people who think it's going that way, and you know, markets have a way of uh, of sort of making humbling people when when they're when they're most confident. So, right, so the way you can tell is when the dollar is hitting all-time lows. That's the, the, the sign that, that hyperinflation is going to start coming in. I think that will be the trigger. Yes, that that will be the sort of um, the the bell, the signal, the bell lap, or I guess the the sort of next phase has begun. Yes. And at that point, you ditch your treasury bills and go into gold and hard. Uh, yeah. At that point, you don't want to own anything that's paper. You want to make whatever it is, um, whether it's bonds, stocks. I mean, arguably, there's a case to be made for stocks in a place like Zimbabwe. Stocks have been a, a safe haven. They've had hyperinflation. I think we're up to about a million percent a year now. Um, yeah. <laughs> it comes irrelevant uh, at a certain point. <laughs> well, I mean, people have retained some value, but it's a controlled economy, so they have nowhere else to go with their money. But in, in, a, in, in an environment where people will have alternatives, I don't know if stocks are going to be such a great idea either. But um, in, uh, you want to own anything that uh, potentially um, is going to keep its value. And, and the, again, the classic examples are gold and silver. Um, it, it will be the time to, bo- to own property. I mean, uh, you know, I think that will be the time when everyone's busted out and, and property is going for pennies on the dollar that you want to buy it because uh, it, it's going to be a haven when, when, they, when they start destroying the currency full, you know, willy-nilly. Can so, we a break? Um, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show, and my guest this hour is Michael Pansner, uh, who is the author of Financial Armageddon, uh, Protect Your Future from Economic Collapse. We'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, 401ks, investments, refinancing. We can help you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790. Voice America Business. Jordan Goodman has created the Money Answers Network to put at his listeners' fingertips the very best personal finance products and services that he has found in his 30 years of research. If you have a money question, Jordan Goodman has a money answer. To find out more, go to www.moneyanswers.com. The Money Answers Network features top products and services in virtually every area of personal finance, car buying and leasing, college financing, credit debt, financial planning, investing, insurance, legal services, mortgages, retirement planning, wills, and more. Only businesses that have demonstrated excellence in both their products and services are invited to become members of the Money Answers Network. The public can sign up for membership in the Money Answers Network at no charge in order to be apprised of the latest useful resources. To learn more, visit www.moneyanswers.com. Get ahead with Money Answers. With thousands of homes destroyed or damaged by fire, lots of people are wondering what to do next. If you are a wildfire survivor, SoCalHelp.org can help you find support and decide what to do right now, wherever you are. This easy-to-use website is a place you can go to get immediate help with food, shelter, and important medications and start getting your life back on track. Get help now with insurance, legal issues, and find professional services like doctors and counselors. You can access contact information for national agencies, hotlines, and services that have the resources you need. You can also connect with other survivors and people who can help. For the answers and support you need to rebuild, visit SoCalHelp.org. Achieve total wealth management 
Listen to Three Dimensional Wealth with Rory Diefendorf every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 Eastern, right here on Voice America Business. Three Dimensional Wealth is a show dedicated to teaching you a value-based approach to comprehensive wealth management through practical strategies and expert advice. Take your first step down the road to financial independence. Listen to Three Dimensional Wealth with Rory Diefendorf Mondays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 Eastern, here on the Bottom Line in Business Talk, Voice America Business. Money, money, up to date business and financial news. Money, money. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866 472 5790. 866 472 5790. Voice America Business. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host, and my guest this hour is Michael Pansner, uh, who is the author of a book called Financial Armageddon, uh, Protect Your Future from Economic Collapse. Welcome to the last segment, Michael. Thank you. Okay, so... Um, do you have a kind of a timeline for all of this? Like uh, the next 10 years is going to be the deflationary part, and then the following 50 years is the inflationary part. What is the timeline you have for all this? Well, my timeline is much shorter than that. I mean, it is wide still. I mean, I think we're talking on the order of the from sort of playing out to, and and depending on the way, way you want to characterize is the sort of end game. But I think you're talking about a process that evolves over three to seven years. Really? Um, uh-huh. And, and I think, like I said to you earlier in the program, that uh, I see housing not really bottoming until about you know sort of five years out. I think that could be the the sort of turnaround in terms of a uh, you know a hyperinflationary moment. Um, and so, uh, you know, like I said, three to seven years, I think it could play out. So, what does the world look like after we've gone through the hyperinflationary phase? Is it, do you get another? deflationary uh, <laughs> collapse? Well, I think at that point, actually, we start anew. I mean, it's, you know, I, I'm, the, the, this country and the world, for that matter, have been through a number of things in our, uh, in, 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 through the generations, you know, civil war and depression and world war and, and, and a number of uh, events that, you know, arguably at the time seemed like they were going to sort of put an end to the world. And, in fact, things moved on, and I think that will be the same here. Although my my view in the short run is extremely negative, I, I, I do believe in, you know, in the longer run, and I do believe that uh, once we get through it, um, it will make uh, probably make us all better for it. But, in the, in, you know, in the interim, it's, it's not going to be a pleasant experience. So a lot of people are going to get hurt by this. How do you think the politicians are going to react when these things start happening? What is their their initial impulse to do, to do something about these things? Well, their initial impulse would be to do something, which I think you had that right, and that whether that something is right or not, I doubt it. Whether it would be right, I'm, I'm, I'm seriously doubtful. I mean, uh, arguably, there's many factors that got us to this point, but one of the key factors, in my opinion, has been, you know, government policy. Uh, and, 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 and I'm neutral. I mean, I'm not a, a, a liberal or a uh, conservative. I'm not a Democrat or Republican. I, I think both sides share the blame, frankly. Um, well, because this year, for example, they did the, uh, the economy started turning down. They did the tax stimulus package of $168 billion that we didn't have, basically. Right, that they hand it out to people. That seems to be the political response: is to hand money out to people. Right, and that that response worked um, for a number of years, and and just like you know, Fed Federal Reserve policy moves work for a number of years, and everyone thinks it's going to work again. But you know, it's time to pay the piper. And you know, you're talking about 
let, let's use the example of the uh, housing market. You know, you're talking on the order of uh, losing trillions of dollars in wealth just from prices falling. Mm-hmm. So if, uh, if they think a hundred-odd billion-dollar uh, stimulus package is going to make a dent in a, against a housing market that's lost trillions, it's just, it's just a complete misunderstanding of, of, of the factors at play. Toward the end of the, your book, Financial Armageddon, you talk about relationships as well. How are relationships going to be changed in the, you know, by the huge economic upheaval you're talking about? Well, I cover it in a number of ways. And in fact, the bo- difference perhaps with my book and, and other books on this kind of a topic, you know, an economic topic, is that I look at the social implications. Because at the end of the day, economics really is not so important. What's important is how it affects your life. And I think it's going to affect social relations in the sense of society is going to become more turbulent. There's going to be a lot more angry people. There's going to be a lot more... Uh, uh, criminal activity, for example. I think, uh, not that I think people are inherently bad, but I think as we saw in, in New Orleans, when people are faced with a desperate situation, they take desperate measures. And, uh, but also uh, relationships apply to who you do business with. I, I made that point earlier. Um, there's a, in my mind, uh, doing due diligence and checking people out, which people have sort of given up on um, or at least you know downplayed until now will become an incredibly important activity because there's going to be a lot more people who either want to take your money or won't be around to pay it back and then you talk about lifestyle changes what kind of lifestyle changes would we expect during this time well, it, it, it dovetails some slightly with this whole uh, concept that consumerism is dead. You're living within your means, um, adjusting your behavior. For example, I think um, health care, regardless of what happens when um, the government comes in and whether we get nationalized health care or not, I don't know. Um, but when, when, gov- when health care is, is likely to suffer and people who can't afford insurance or people who are in a position where they, where they don't have many alternatives like that um, are going to have to sort of make make necessary arrangements to deal with their own uh, issues. And one of them may be changing the way you live and, uh, and, and taking simple acts such as, you know, losing weight and, and, and cutting down on smoking. I mean, just to ensure that, you know, you don't end up in a, in a situation where you can't afford to fix yourself. In our final minute, why don't you just kind of sum up what you see is going to happen and, and the, the brief steps people should make to take now to protect themselves against the uh, financial Armageddon that you see coming. In my view, the single most important word of advice I can offer is the fact is, uh, is don't dismiss this outcome. Because if you dismiss it and you're not prepared for it, it's going to hit you all that much harder. Um, but the, the, the reality is that imagine tomorrow not being better than today and prepare for that. I mean, saving money, don't taking so much debt, protecting your job, making sure you have you know, uh, other opportunities available, doing everything you can because you know tomorrow may be more difficult. I think that's the essence of the story. Very good. Well, it's really been a fascinating look and, and scary for a lot of people, but it's better that they're forewarned than they be surprised by these things and, and have them uh, kind of creep up on them. So basically you're saying we're in the next three to seven years going through first a deflationary cycle then a hyperinflationary cycle. If you play it right, you can do very well. If you play it wrong, you can really get hurt uh, quite badly. Um, again, I've been speaking with Michael Pantner, uh, who's uh, worked on Wall Street for many years and met various banks as a trader. Uh, he does have a website related to this book, which is www.financialarmageddon.com. Uh, thank you so much, Michael. Really appreciate you being on the show. Thank you. Enjoyed it. And we'll be back again next week.
Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.